It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation's semi-annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal, too. Schedule a no-obligation in-home estimate now. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Do you remember Blockbuster? I sure do. Let me tell you, there was no better feeling than my mom taking me, my brother, my sister, and dropping us off at the Blockbuster. We'd go nuts, running up and down the aisles. Whatever that new game was or that new movie that we wanted to see, it was there. And that was the beauty of Blockbuster, right? They had the movies first, and they had the wide selection. Horror, genre, action, comedy. You could choose. You had a lot of options within those categories. Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo, they had them. But when you think about Blockbuster now, it's it's a sad feeling. It's more of a cringe. But Blockbuster was something then to be celebrated. And to think about the Blockbuster then, to think that it could be what it is now, which is nothing, it's almost unbelievable, right? It was such a giant. It was so invasive, pervasive in our culture. But times change. Netflix came around and Blockbuster said, oh, well, no, we don't have anything to worry about here. We're Blockbuster. We're this established brand. People love us. Well, it didn't quite work out so well, did it? By the time that Blockbuster decided to start their own streaming business, it was too late. They were done. Stores were closing everywhere. You might have the shell of a Blockbuster right by your house. I do. So one of the things that you have to prioritize is the ability to change. You have to understand when the trends are starting to move and move with them because otherwise you end up like Blockbuster. You're a cautionary tale. 
And when it comes to the NFL, there's one coach that needs to be highlighted and one group of players, a special group of players, that needs to be highlighted for their ability to adapt with the times in the NFL. And that's none other than Joe Gibbs and the Hogs. Hello and welcome to Upon Further Review. I am Vince Quinn, your host, and you can find me on Twitter at It's Vince Quinn. Yes, we're talking about the Hogs, and the Hogs are such a weird thing as an Eagles fan because you just think of the old guys dressed up in skirts and sashes and earrings, and it it grosses you out a little bit, all right? Listen, fellas, I don't want to see it. But... Who is the team? How good were they? Was it like the Dirty Birds where it's this single miraculous season? Oh no, it's so much more. And to understand the full journey that the Hogs take in this amazing transformation that they go through, we have to start in 1981 when Joe Gibbs is hired. The Redskins were a middling franchise at this time. They had been to a Super Bowl in 1972. They had been to a couple of playoff appearances after that and generally nothing for a few years. They were 10 and 6 in 79, 6 and 10 in 1980, and the coach was fired. Joe Gibbs comes in and he makes some huge moves right off the bat. And he's a first time head coach. He'd been around the league a little bit. He was with the Cardinals, which were in St. Louis. He had spent some time with the Buccaneers. He was with the Chargers for a little bit in, in all sorts of capacities. He had been an offensive line coach. He had been a running back coach. He was an offensive coordinator. And now here he was with the Redskins in 81. And he puts his background to use in such an important way. Because in 1981, with the Redskins' first pick in the draft, they pick Mark May, who you might have seen on television. Mark May was a guard out of Pittsburgh. So he was with Dan Marino at Pittsburgh, and he was selected in the first round. And then in the third round, they pick another Pittsburgh Panther. His name is Russ Grimm. And then, undrafted, out of Louisville, they add right tackle Joe Jacoby. Three very good, what would be foundational players for the Joe Gibbs era. And in 1981, you don't have a sense of anything special brewing, necessarily. They're a very middle-of-the-road team. They go 8-8, eight and eight. they're pretty young. And they have a quarterback in Joe Theismann, who is a little older at this point. He's around 30 years old, but he's not anything special. Joe Theismann is a guy that will throw something like 20 touchdowns, 19 interceptions. He's not blowing the doors off of anybody. His completion percentages are in the high 50s. Again, he's not an all-world quarterback, at this stage in his career. But 1982 is when things really take off for Joe Gibbs in this squad. And what helps them is an innocuous comment, really. There's a point where the Washington Redskins are practicing. And as they're going through drills, Joe Bugle, who is the line coach for the Skins at this time, he sees two of his linemen, Russ Grimm, 
and he sees Jeff Bostic, who is the center, who was undrafted in 1980. And he just sees they're short guys, they're kind of chubby. It's the nature of being linemen, especially interior linemen. So he looks over and yells at them and says, Come on over, you hogs. Join the rest of the team. And that quote gets picked up, and it gets put in the paper. And then what do you know? People loved it. They couldn't get enough. You start seeing pigs in the parking lot. You start seeing these grown men dressed as pigs. There was a song that was written about loving them hogs. This team was something that the entire city embraced and could not get enough of. And with good reason. Because this 1982 season is spectacular. The Redskins start 2-0. and But now there's an interesting thing that happens here. There's a strike. Yes, the NFL goes on strike in 1982, and it's a long one. It's eight weeks in the middle of the season. Think about that. A lot of times now, when professional leagues, any of them, when they go on strike, it's not during the season. You don't have a negotiation end during the season. Why? Because it's problems like this. You don't want to have a holdout. You don't want to have a lockout in the middle of the season. So many weird, quirky things can happen because you have your mindset on the money and negotiations. And maybe you're not looking in the playbook so much. Maybe you're not working out as much. It messes with the whole vibe. I mean, think of training camp and all these practices, the preseason. You play two games and then you say, well, let's take a break for three months. And when you do that, you're not with the team. You're not practicing in those official capacities. You're not getting coached. You're not running plays. You're not doing any of that stuff. And then you just come back and bam, at the drop of a hat, you're playing games again. So to be a team that was 2-0 and and had all of this youth and some upside, you would be concerned. Or so you'd think. Because Washington rolls through the league when they get back. Being 2-0 and to start, they end up playing... Seven games more, and they finish the season at 8-1. and one, And they go to the playoffs. And when you look back at what the Redskins did in these playoffs in 1982, it's very odd. It seems wrong from someone who's looking back from over 30 years later. Because the Redskins have a very simple solution to football. They're going to run it. And if it doesn't work, they're going to run it again. Well, what if that doesn't work? Surely we should have a plan C, and that plan C should be something different from the other two ideas, which is to run the ball. No, they're going to run the ball again. And that's the era of football that the Redskins are playing in. This is the norm. In the playoffs, in the divisional round, John Riggins has 25 carries for 119 yards in the first round. In the second round, he has 37 carries, 185 yards, and a touchdown. The next week, 36 carries, 140 yards, and two touchdowns. This is the style that is played at this time. This is the style that gets you to a Super Bowl. Because you look at the opponent, and when you go to the other side of this 1982 Super Bowl, you see none other than the Miami Dolphins. And this is not the star-studded, undefeated Miami Dolphins, but they are a very good team, and they play a very similar style. Think about this. The Redskins going into the Super Bowl, 
that season in 82, strike shortened, were 24th in the league in passing. They were 5th in rushing. The Dolphins, their opponent, were 27th in the league in passing. And this is a 28-team league. They're 27th in the league in passing, but they're first in rushing. And so they run and run and run and run their way to a Super Bowl, and they run into the Hogs and Joe Gibbs and John Riggins. And let me tell you, it does not end well for the Miami Dolphins. The Skins run at will. They can't help themselves. They run... All of 38 times with John Riggins for 166 yards. He sets both of those marks as Super Bowl records. That's championship football in 1982. It's gritty. It's nasty. It's three yards in a cloud of dust. That's the gold standard. And for the Skins, they do it again in 1983 because... It works. Why change, right? This has been the state of the NFL. When you go through the history of the NFL, actually, you can see the amount of times that your average team would run the ball versus your average team passing the ball. And it's highly favored in terms of running. For example, in 1978, your average team passed the ball 422 times. They would run it 574. It's a differential of 152. Teams would run 152 times more than they passed on average. In the current day, I looked at the 2016 numbers, it's almost the exact opposite. Teams pass 155 times more than they run. It's a completely different game. And the Redskins and the Hogs and John Riggins and Joe Gibbs, who's engineering and drafting this whole thing, well, they're going to play that style. That's the way the game is played. And in 1983, Riggins runs 375 times. And to put that in a modern perspective, Ezekiel Elliott, in his rookie season with the Dallas Cowboys, was considered to have run the ball a lot. He ran it almost 50 times less than John Riggins did. And Riggins isn't setting the world on fire in the way you'd expect. He ran for 3.6 yards a carry. He's not dominating the league. This is not Jim Brown. This is three yards, cloud of dust, grit, grind. It's ugly football. So that's the kind of style you're getting. But you also see an elevation, and it's an interesting one to note, with Joe Theismann. Joe Theismann has been a starter for a long time in the NFL, but he ends up having the best two seasons of his career in 1982 and 1983. In 1983, he actually is the MVP of the league. He throws the ball for 3,700 yards, 29 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions. Those are huge numbers for then. Think about this. Teams are running the ball 150 times more than they're passing. And here's Joe Theismann, and he's throwing for 3,700 yards. That's a lot for 1983, and that's why it wins him the MVP. 
So the Skins ride this wave of Joe Theismann. They ride John Riggins into the ground in the Hogs. And Joe Gibbs takes the Redskins to a 14-2 and record. They reach the Super Bowl again. And we see the same stodgy, nasty, bullish type of football as the Redskins meet the Raiders in the Super Bowl in 1983. So the rushing attempts in this game... Washington has 32 of them for 90 yards and a touchdown. Oakland has 33 for 231 yards and two touchdowns. Based on the era, I think it's pretty clear who won. Oakland ends up winning the game 38-9. to It's not even a fight. But... The model is stable. The model's been proven. It's the way the league operates. And running is safe, isn't it? You think of the quarterback position. And one of the problems of not having a great quarterback in the modern era is you pass a lot. And it's riskier to throw a pass in a completion and get a completion than it is to hand off the ball. So it feels like they can easily go and compete again. The entirety of the offensive line is intact. All five hogs are still there. John Riggins is still there. This is not a lost cause. But in the beginning of the 1994 season, their very first game, Joe Gibbs and the hogs again encounter the Miami Dolphins. It's the team that they beat in the 1982 Super Bowl. But there's something about this team that they can't quite put their finger on. Something's different. Well, I'll tell you. There's this thing that's happening in the underbelly of the NFL. Something very sexy. Something very new. Something very TV-friendly that we all love and enjoy today and right now. But no one expected it to happen in the very first week of the NFL season, and it happens against the team that was just in the Super Bowl that lost to the Raiders that the year before won the damn thing. And it happens in front of their fan base. It happens in front of Joe Gibbs. It happens in front of John Riggins and Joe Theismann and the Hogs. They see themselves become extinct in one football game in 1984 during their home opener. And everyone sees this thing. Well, I mean, not everyone. Cable's new. ESPN's barely around, and the ones that do have it don't know where to find it. There's no red zone, but there's whispers down the lane. And there's Monday night highlight videos. And people start to recognize this brand new NFL that's right in front of their face. But we can't talk about that until we quickly go back to 1983. Because there are significant events that happen during the 1983 season. And no, we're not going to go through the 1983 season and break it all down. It's something that happens before the 1983 season starts. And for the most part, we all know this story. In 1983, there are three Hall of Fame quarterbacks that get drafted. The first one off the board is John Elway. John Elway and John Elway's dad don't want to go to the Baltimore Colts because they're scumbags. So the owner of the Baltimore Colts goes, here, Denver, you can have them. And in return, they don't get anything. Also in that draft, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly goes 
to the Buffalo Bills. But Jim Kelly doesn't want to go to the Buffalo Bills. And thank God that there is this brand new spring league called the USFL. That's not going to compete with the NFL. That's there just to be there when there's not enough football around. We're going to create this new league. And Jim Kelly goes, how much are you going to pay me? Oh, my God. Yes, please. I am in. But with the 27th pick of this draft in 1983 is really interesting. This guy who went to the University of Pittsburgh, who came out as in his junior year, lit up the world, and for the most part should have been right next to John Elway as far as 1-2 goes in this NFL draft. But that doesn't happen. And why doesn't this happen? Because his senior year, his numbers tank. And then there are rumors that come out about, well, he really likes to party. He likes to get down. He likes to kiss the girls and drink the Miller Lights. And this flutters all the way down to the second-to-last pick in the 1983 draft. And it's Dan Marino. Dan Marino is selected at the 27th overall spot, just above the Washington Redskins, who just won the Super Bowl, who beat the Miami Dolphins in 1982. And they take Dale Green. And you start to wonder, man, what if Miami had the same vibe that the rest of the league did at this point and went, yeah, there's just too much partying going on. I don't really know if I trust his numbers. I don't know if I really trust his arm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because it's very easily that Miami goes, we'll take Daryl Green. And Washington goes, you know what? We do have a 35-year-old quarterback who has without a doubt been our franchise and possible Hall of Famer to come in and out. He's led us to a Super Bowl. But maybe we should take a shot on this kid. He doesn't have to start right away. I'm sure that that's a conversation that has happened. But instead, Miami pulls the trigger. And it's not like you can say, man, Washington, what a terrible pick. It's Daryl Green. Daryl Green's a Hall of Famer. Daryl Green plays 19 seasons in the NFL. That is not a made-up thing. He holds on until 2002. From 1983 to 2002 is insane as a corner. And then eventually a strong safety for about four games as he wrapped up his career. So this is where we are in 1984. We're sitting here after Dan Marino gets some experience in 1983, and in fact, not just experience in 1983. Dan Marino goes 7-2 as he gets his first NFL start in Week 5 and carries them on into a playoff run that is very short-lived because they get bounced in the first round to the Seattle Seahawks, who ran the football to beat them. And the Seahawks in 1983 also run the football all the way to the AFC Championship game against the Raiders and Marcus Allen, who decided to run the football a little bit better. I mean, both of these teams, as far as wide receivers are concerned, non-existent. Oakland used their tight end, and they used Marcus Allen, and that was it. That was it. Jim Plunkett had barely 2,700 yards throwing during this entire time. So where are we? We're back in 1984 now. We're at the very first game of the 1984 season, and once you know it, it's the Washington Redskins versus the Miami Dolphins. And the game starts out like anything else, like it's still 1983. 
you have John Riggins for seven yards at the opening drive, then for four and a first down, then Theismann, Joe Theismann, and a lot of these different guys still in the early 80s, including Bernie Kosar, who still back up like they're carrying a sack of groceries when they're backing up to throw. Uh, huppity, 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 hupp. Not the defined, beautiful footwork that you would see from an Andrew Luck. Nothing like that. Nothing where you're separating your feet on a parallel. They're just backing up like Johnny Unitas used to do. That is still here in the league. After 20 years of playing quarterback, that is still how you back up and throw a pass in 1983 and in 1984. He throws for a bomb. That doesn't work on first down to try and surprise him. Ricketts for five. Theismann another bomb. Some other stuff that happens in there. They eventually have to kick and punt away to the Miami Dolphins. Miami Dolphins come back. They kind of do some of the similar things that we're used to. Sure, there's some passes in there in between, but they end up having to punt too. Then then Washington kind of semi-marches down the field in the old style that they did. John Riggins, again, heavy workload coming in here. Here's the football. And then Art Monk, bang, a little quick slant over the middle, and they're in field goal range. And this is where their drive stalls, and they're around you know, the Miami 35, and they're going to go for a field goal here. And this is how still stuck in the old NFL ways in 1984 that this Washington Redskins team is. And it's amazing that I'm saying this because, again, they just came from back-to-back Super Bowl appearances. But Mark Mosley, Mark Mosley, their field goal kicker, is still kicking with a front toe kick, not soccer style. This is straight out of the 60s, the 50s, when you would see guys just kind of poking at the football. That's Mark Mosley. And his first kick of the season goes wide right, wide right. So they miss on the opportunity. And that right there is when the NFL completely changes. The Dolphins get the ball back and then a semi-traditional way, they go marching down the field. Some dink and dunks, some really nice slant patterns, dumping it off to the running back until they get down to the Washington Redskins 30-yard line. It's a third down play. A third down play, and Dan Marino gets the defensive line to jump off sides real quick, so it's a free play. It's a free play, and he doesn't hesitate. He backs up. That there's Mark Duper in the end zone, and guess who's covering Mark Duper? It's Daryl Green. Daryl Green, the Hall of Famer, the guy that got selected after Dan Marino. Dan Marino looks at him, and goes, <laughs> "Yeah, okay." That bang touchdown. What an arm Dan Marino has. Is this is this what we were? supposed to see is this what's really happening in front of our eyes yes now Washington comes down in the old school fashion that they know John Riggins John Riggins John Riggins here it is one yard touchdown run they're into it in the second quarter it's a seven to seven game it's kind of a snoozer at this point but that's the Redskin way and they continue to do that throughout the second quarter they control the ball they control the clock so seven seven then Mark Mosley 32 yard field goal Dan Marino's 9 for 10 at this point when they get the ball back. It's a snooze fest. Miami can't 
get really anything going because they don't have the ball enough. Because the old school way of controlling the clock, running the football, is is working. It's doing its thing until this drive. Miami's at about their own 25-yard line. And it's the third play of this drive. And Dan Marino just says, you know what? I- I've had enough. It's time to score points. And from about his own 25, he launches a ball to Mark Duper that lands at about the 50. And Mark Duper just turns on the Jets. It goes 74 yards all in total for a touchdown. And it's 14 to 10 at that point. And then the game is over. Dan Marino, Jim Jensen, touchdown, 21-10. Dan Marino, Mark Clayton, 28-10. Dan Marino, touchdown, Jim Jensen, 35-10. Joe Washington, garbage four-yard touchdown, 35-17. Marino goes 21 of 28. 21 passes completed, 311 yards, five touchdowns. Mark Duper on the day, Six receptions, 178 yards, two touchdowns. And this theme continued throughout the season. Mark Clayton, who was a return guy, who barely saw any action. Well, a little action. He had three catches and 30 yards and a touchdown in here. But he would go on to be wide receiver number two for the entire season. And not just wide receiver number two in quotes. He actually statistically was number one. He finished the season with 73 receptions and 1,389 yards with 18 touchdowns. Mark Duper, 71 catches, 1,306 yards, 8 touchdowns. Two wide receivers, two of them, two, with over 1,300 yards on the season. Dan Marino threw for 5,000 and 84 yards this season in his second year in the NFL in his first full season as the starter 317 yards a game and do you know who the Dolphins lead running back was it was their fullback 144 attempts Tony Nathan who was the Swiss Army knife back in the day 118 attempts 61 catches, 579 yards in the air, two touchdowns receiving, one on the ground. Joe Carter, other running back, 100 attempts, 53 catches in the air. This is the birth of a running back by committee that didn't rely on a workhorse. It relied on Dan Marino's arm. And they didn't care who it was. They ran through everybody in 1984 using Dan Marino's arm. They went 11-0 to start the season until an overtime loss to the Chargers happened. And then they beat the Jets, and then they lost to the Raiders, and then they beat the Colts, the Cowboys, on their way into the playoffs and to eventually the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. The Seattle Seahawks that previously in 1983 stifled them with their running game blew them out of the water in the divisional playoffs. 31-10. to The Pittsburgh Steelers, the vaunted Pittsburgh Steelers who have played nothing but great defense throughout their entire history, let them score 45 points in the conference championship game. 435 yards. The ground and pound 
officially dead as they roll into the Super Bowl. And do you know who they play in 1984? Also, very brand new, very sexy, very apprehensive to most of the league and if this thing will actually work. And do you know who is there in 1984 to meet this brand new juggernaut, this thing that's going to overtake the NFL as the Dolphins have figured out a completely new way on how to change this game, and it's through the air. They face this new thing called the West Coast Offense with this guy named Bill Walsh and with this other quarterback named Joe Montana. And in 1984, the San Francisco 49ers beat the shit out of them. Montana goes for 331 yards and three touchdowns. Marino still throws for 300 yards, except he has to do it on 50 attempts versus Montana's 35 and only one touchdown and two interceptions. And this is how the league changes. Everything turns to ash, and we have a new era of football. So the league has changed. The Miami Dolphins have done something that you can't go back from. It's too great. It's too powerful. It's something you can't ignore. And Joe Gibbs has seen it firsthand in the very first week of that 1984 season, coming off of two Super Bowls, one win and one loss. He gets destroyed by that offense. And so he faces an interesting, life-changing moment. Do you evolve with the league? Or do you die like Blockbuster, stubborn in your ways? Well, Gibbs resolves to change. And it's something that's very tangible. In fact, you can see. So, in that 1983 season, When the Skins made their second consecutive appearance in the Super Bowl, they ran the ball more than anybody. 629 times they ran the ball. They passed it 463. An incredible imbalance. But 1984, you see a mild decline. They're only second in the league. Only. With 588 rushes to 485 passes. They've gone from 19th in passing to 21st. In 1985, they change again. They're only, they're only third now, third in the league in rushing 571 rushes, 512 passes. They move up to being the 14th passing unit. And in 1986, the change continues to grow. They go to 14th in the league in rushing as John Riggins retires, and they go to 10th in the league in passing. Now, while these changes may seem gradual because it is over a couple of years, you have to note that the league is doing it too. So this is necessary if you're going to keep up and compete with the modern NFL offense in the middle of the 1980s. Because, again, the differential in 1978 was 152. They ran the ball 152 more times than they passed in 1978. And in 1984, you see this dramatic switch. For the first time in league history, there's more passing than running. 
plus 18 is the differential. They pass 18 more times on average than they run. It's a small figure. But like the Redskins and their changes under Joe Gibbs and the Hogs, they slowly see that gap increase. You get a plus 28 differential in 85. You get a plus 34 differential in 86. And now we're at 1987. And Joe Gibbs, with the Hogs in tow, has an opportunity to really make a splash in the NFL. Because in 86, they make it to the conference championship game. And they end up losing to the New York Giants. So in 1987, there's a rosy picture to be had. Again, the Hogs are still there. You have at least, out of the original five, you have four of the members. And I guess I should specify that, by the way. When it comes to the Hogs, it's not the whole team. It's not like the Dirty Birds, where it was the whole squad in 1998. This is a small, selective, prideful group of guys. You had to earn it. John Riggins, when he's carrying the ball five trillion times for three yards, he earns it. He he deservedly is a hog. But the rest of the guys, they're primarily linemen. George Stark, Russ Grimm, Jeff Bostick, Mark May, Joe Jacoby. Those are your starting five on the line. Doc Walker is a tight end that has some time with the team. Don Warren is an honorary hog. But it's not everyone. So when you're in 1987, you still have Grimm, Bostic, May, and Jacoby. So you've got high talent. They were the line that was the best rushing offense in the league just a few short years ago. And they've made this transition slowly to the passing game. And they've had continuity while doing it. The only member they've lost is George Stark, who left the team in 1984. So with these guys, and with Joe Gibbs, and with the success of that 1986 season, things look good for Washington. And to begin the year, they go 2-1. and one. They beat the Eagles, unfortunately. They beat, the, or they lose to the Atlanta Falcons, and then they win again against the St. Louis Cardinals. So they're 2-1. and one. But another peculiar thing happens. The NFL goes on strike again. This is the second time in five years now that the NFL is facing a strike. But this strike is handled far differently than the one in 1982. Because in 82, they missed a bunch of games. That's how the problem was solved. No one played. In 1987, the owners decided to stick it to the players. And scabs crossed the picket line. So in that time, not only was there all these changes in the league that Gibbs has adapted to, but now Gibbs has to deal with entirely new players that he doesn't necessarily want, and he has to win with them. Because, hey, as much as you don't want the scabs, you care about the guys that you have drafted, these guys that you have developed and built relationships with, and you want to have your team in the best possible scenario to compete for a Super Bowl when the strike's over, whenever that may be. So he has to change the game up entirely, and he does it playing that boring, gritty, old-school football. When you look at the numbers of what happens in those three scab games, Gibbs runs the ball 
in the first game, 33 times to 24 passes. In the second game, 48 rushes to 23 passes. And in game six, more of the same, 42 rushes to 20 passes. He runs the ball a ton. And so when you look back on the season, you see the numbers and you're like, oh, well, that's that's weird because these past couple of seasons, Gibbs has progressively run the ball less and passed more. And now they've reverted again. Well, when you look at the league-wide numbers, it's all a little screwy because everyone dealt with the, the strike in their own way. But Gibbs did it in a way that was simple. It prevented turnovers and allowed them to win Three straight games. That's pretty impressive. So Gibbs gets his team back, and they do a pretty good job. They end up finishing the season with an 11-4 and record. And they have a backup quarterback you might have heard of named Doug Williams. Yeah, Williams was not the starter for this season. That was not the intent. And he's not a scab holdover either. They did have the scab quarterback named Eb Rubbert, who only played three games in the NFL and then disappeared. But Jay Schroeder was the starting quarterback for the Skins. Well, he gets injured, and Doug Williams takes over. He had a total of two starts on the season prior to the playoffs. But he gets in there against the Chicago Bears in the divisional round. And he does his job. It's not glamorous. He's 14 of 29 for 207 yards. It's a passing touchdown, an interception. Again, it's not incredibly awful. This is still 1987, but it's not great either. Then you get to the next game. And Doug Williams, again, is not incredibly amazing. He's 9 of 26. But he's, he's got 119 yards. But he has two touchdowns and zero interceptions. So Williams, Gibbs, and the Hogs, it's, it's not glamorous. It's not even that same ugly run-the-ball-300-times football, but they do eke out a 17-10 to win. And what do you know? They're in the Super Bowl yet again. Four years after being there as the heaviest run team in the league and getting blown out by Oakland. Five years after being the fifth best run team and facing the first best team in Miami. And now in the Super Bowl in 1987, the matchup is a little different. They're facing John Elway and the Denver Broncos, one of the better passing teams in the league. They were second in attempts with 530. Think of a couple years ago when teams were throwing 422. 530 attempts, 3,654 yards, 24 touchdowns, and 19 interceptions. This is a modern team. But fortunately for Joe Gibbs and the Hogs, These pigs can fly! Boy, I've been waiting to say that. 
Yeah, the Washington Redskins in the Super Bowl against John Elway, Dan Reeves, and the Denver Broncos have one of the most historic quarters that the NFL has ever seen. And it's in such a different way. Think of 1982. John Riggins, 38 rushes, 166 yards. Those were records. Those were the kinds of records that Joe Gibbs set. Those were the offensive machinations that he worked within. But in Super Bowl XXII... Joe Gibbs unleashes one of the most fearsome passing quarters in the history of NFL football, led by backup quarterback Doug Williams. And how devastating is this quarter? They have five possessions, and they score 35 points. Five touchdowns. They turn a 10-0 deficit into a 35-10 lead. And it's just a few short flicks of the wrist that do it. Doug Williams, 9 completions, 11 attempts, 228 yards, and 4 passing touchdowns. And they have totals of 8 yards, 27 yards, 50 yards, and 80 yards. Wait, what? The Redskins, Joe Gibbs Redskins, the Hogs, that team that ran 625 times a year with reckless abandon, they're throwing for what? In the Super Bowl? Are you kidding me? Yes, it's a completely different team. The game was shut down by halftime. It was over. There was even a point after the game, because this was such a historic quarter, that many yards of offense, 356 total, had never been done in a quarter. And they weren't sure. They tried to verify at the time if it was a record for the regular season as well. Had there ever been a quarter this successful offensively in NFL history? And the Elias Sports Bureau, they had a member, Seymour Siwoff, and he said, we don't keep one quarter records. But geez, 356 yards, who could have gained more than that? That's the state of the NFL. That's how big of a shock and a transformation that everything in 1984 led to. Now you have Doug Williams throwing for 80 yards, 27, 58, all touchdowns, all in 5 minutes and 54 seconds. They dismembered a team and ended a Super Bowl. It's incredible. It's historic, and it shows you the mastery of Joe Gibbs. And this trend would continue after now two Super Bowls. The The balance continues to switch. Right after that season, in 1988, the Skins are the second most passing attempts in the league. They're fourth in 89. They're seventh in 1990. They're a very different organization from the rushing squad that they were. They end up winning another Super Bowl in 1991. So Joe Gibbs has three Super Bowls by the end of this era. A lot of the Hogs do as well. Russ Grimm ends up getting into the Hall of Fame as the main representative of the Hogs. It's a beautiful golden era for the Skins, and one with Dan Snyder they may never see again. And while that second return phase of Joe Gibbs is not stellar, And it's laughable, in a sense, when you look back at how they were desperate to recreate that magic. Man, what 
a special coach. What a special transformation. And what ability by the Hogs to go from that running team to that passing team and still be lethally efficient on offense. So impressive. So that is the story of Joe Gibbs and the Hogs, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And you can feel free to give me your thoughts at It's Vince Quinn on Twitter and also at John Barchard. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Thanks to John for being a part of the show. And when you now go and have that conversation of who some of the greatest coaches that the NFL has ever seen were, you better include Joe Gibbs. I'm Vince Quinn, and I'll see you next week.